Well, good evening, church. It's great to be with you guys tonight as we gather together to worship Christ the King. Thank you guys for coming. I know that um, when I came in or when I came up here, there was probably some internal or maybe even external size. Like, ah, oh, it's not Greg. All right. Got the fifth string guy up here tonight. Okay. Maybe, maybe he'll be done quick. Um, so I take no offense to that. Greg is an exceptional preacher. I love sitting underneath his teaching, and I've grown so much from, from being here. So no offense to that at all tonight, um, and we'll, we'll continue on. I won't be long tonight, but I do want to talk about some of the things that are going on in our society and how we can respond as a church, just taking some application from the Bible and using it to, uh, to improve our lives and, to our, and, and improve our church family. You guys know we live in a time period where it's just crazy, rapid social change. And this change is in a direction that does not does not go in the direction that we believe the Bible teaches. I mean, it's very obvious to see that this month alone, there's the celebration of sexual sin, and not just the celebration, but the absolute acceptance of this sexual sin that we see all around us, from parades in the street to promotions in corporations and different things going on. Sexual sin has become the new norm. It's just regular and standard to see this all around us. I don't know if you have seen on the news, but there's examples where public libraries across the country will have these children's story hours where parents can bring your kids to the library and someone read Dr. Seuss for an hour and the cat in the hat, and it's a great time. I've, I've taken my kids to, the, to some of these story hours in the library by our house. But there's libraries around the country in certain parts of the world that these children's story hours are actually being hosted by drag queens. And parents are bringing their kids to these things and celebrating this as if this is completely normal and acceptable. Last week, um, as Corey was praying, the Dobbs case overturned the Roe v. Wade decision and returned abortion, the decision to abort, down to the state level. And we celebrated that in my my family. Um, But across the country, there has been so many threats against Christian pregnancy crisis centers. My wife volunteers at a a crisis center near our house, and they are spending thousands of dollars to beef up security because of all these threats that are going on where she just goes to volunteer. Also, you know, we have all these, um, these threats, but there's these accusations that these crisis centers don't care about babies once they're born. It's all about control. Like, you're just controlling the womb, and you just want to see babies stay there and well, you know, would-be mothers to suffer and all this stuff like that. But when the baby's born, you don't care about what's going on. And my wife has received some of this, and she's seen some of this on Facebook and different social media from friends that these crisis centers don't care about the kids, the babies, when they're born. But where my wife volunteers, every baby is given a brand new crib. Not a hand-me-down crib, a, ba- a brand new crib. I have six kids in my family, and they don't get new cribs. It's just a, a hand-me-down from generation to generation. But they get brand new cribs there. They get education, how to raise a kid, um, help to find a job. The mothers can come in and get free clothing for herself and for the new baby, free diapers every single week, free formula. And the world looks at this stuff and says, burn it down. Just burn it down, what you're doing. The craziness of this world, the celebration of sin, the threats of violence, the slander, the marginalization of our worldview, I don't think it's all necessarily a bad thing. Now hear me out when I say that. There is evil all around us, but I don't think it's necessarily all bad for us. And the reason why I think that is because it's becoming easier to tell who is in the kingdom of God and who is not in the kingdom of God. Who is a sheep? and who is a goat? Who is a child of the king, and who are the children of the serpent? 
is becoming much easier to tell. This idea of nominal Christianity, maybe you've, ter- you've heard that term before, whereas this idea that someone professes Jesus with their lips, but their lifestyle professes something that's completely different. I think with all this change going on, the days of nominal Christianity are coming to an end because there's no worldly incentive to be a Christian. It's actually kind of not cool anymore to be a Christian. And I also think it's easier for us to shine in the darkness because there's so much darkness all around us. So tonight, from God's word, I want to study how can we thrive when the days are dark? How can we thrive in these turbulent times? Not just as individuals, but as a church family, how can we thrive in these days? Because the call to follow Jesus is not a call to be scared. It's not a call to be scared. It's not a call to bunker down and huddle up with our Christian friends and our Christian family and just wait until we die and then go be with the Lord. That's not the call of Christ. The call of Christ is to go follow him. It's to love Christ, honor Christ, serve Christ, to suffer with Christ, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's not a time for Christ's covenant to shrink back and cower and hide. We have the God of the universe on our side. There's no reason to shrink back and cower and hide. But it's time for us to remain faithful to Christ and diligently pass on the commands and the gospel of God to the next generation. The last couple weeks, Greg has preached two sermons that have really impacted me. That's why you know, when people make comments like, oh, it's not Greg, I'm like, I, I get it, I really do. Uh, but he's, made, he's, he's done a couple of uh, sermons that have really impacted me. Last Wednesday, if you were here, he preached from Revelation chapter 2 and the, uh, the letter to the local church in Smyrna. And then on Father's Day, he was Deuteronomy 6 to talk about, well, a lot of stuff, but just how Christian fathers should be acting in general. And I'm not going to rehash those sermons, but I'm going to use both of those texts tonight, uh, Deuteronomy 6 and Revelation chapter 2, because if you take both of those texts and you kind of slam them together, we actually arrive at what Paul said for Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, how Timothy can thrive in the godless society of Ephesus where he was pastoring. How can Timothy thrive in that time? And it's actually a combination of Deuteronomy 6 and Revelation 2. That, um, that Paul promotes here. So we're going to get started on that. If you could pray with me again uh, real quick, and then we will jump into the word. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we're thankful that you have given us your son. We're thankful that you have given us directions to live by. Father, we confess that we are sinful, but Father, we know that you are faithful to us, that you are patient with us, you forbear with us, you love us, you're graceful to us, Thank you, Father, that you do not change. You are our sure and steady anchor in these times where everything seems to be out of control. You are our anchor, and you do not change. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, and thank you for the peace that is found in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to skip around a little bit in the, in the Word tonight. If you guys have a Bible and you want to go to Revelation 2, uh, 9 and 10, you can, or I'm just going to read it uh, for us. But this is, Greg mentioned this verse last week. He preached from this verse And this is written to the local church in Smyrna. Jesus said this to the local church. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil was about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This local church existed in a polytheistic Roman culture. Christians in Rome, like Greg said last week, were often called atheists 
because they refused to worship all these other gods. They said, the Lord our God is one, and we worship one God, one God. And so society looked at them and said, you're an atheist. You don't believe in all these other gods. And they said, no, we believe in one God. Our Christian fathers and mothers were often looked down on, mistreated, and abused, especially under the, the Roman Emperor Nero, who killed our Christian fathers and mothers in mass, literally taking some of them and lighting them up, lighting them up in the streets, using them as like streetlights. Um, that was what some of our Christian mothers and fathers went through. But Jesus told this local church to not be fearful, to not be scared of suffering, do not fear prison, and remain faithful unto death. Jesus spoke these words to an entire church, not an individual, but an entire church, commanding them as a whole church family, rally together and do not be scared. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer, but remain faithful together. Together, remain faithful. Now, Paul wrote something very similar to his spiritual son, Timothy. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And as I go through this, Paul's going to start off this chapter and he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So Paul makes this, this, uh, this claim. In the last days you will experience times of difficulty. So as I read through this list, he's going to list some attributes and characteristics of the last days. Just put a check mark next to the ones that you think are actually, that you actually see in society. Not stuff you hear about, but stuff you actually witness with your own eyes. So listen to what Paul said here. But understand this, that in the last day, there will come times of difficulty. Okay, here's where the checklist starts. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. How'd Paul do? It's pretty accurate from what you guys see um, going on in our society today. He says, in the last days, you will have difficulty. Jesus said, you will have tribulation. These things are to be expected um, for us. So how do we thrive in these days? What do we do? How do we thrive as a church? How do we thrive as individual families? How do we live in a period which seems so wicked? How do we function in Babylon or a city like Smyrna or Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring? To answer these questions, let's stay in 2 Timothy. And the reason I love, I was talking to Corey about 2 Timothy um, before we started tonight. The reason why I love 2 Timothy so much and why it's so applicable is because 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter. It's, his, it's the last letter that he wrote before he was executed. And Paul wrote it while he was in jail. And not only was he in jail, he was actually chained inside his jail cell. So Paul, at the, the few moments right before he died, did not even have the freedom to walk around his jail cell. So it's not that though he was just in prison, but he was chained inside of his cell. So he had no freedom at all. He couldn't go anywhere. He was completely tied to the spot. But Paul remained faithful all the way to the end. He did not fear suffering. He did not feel, fear jail. He remained faithful all the way to his execution. He did not waver. 
So there's a lot of things that we can learn from what Paul told to Timothy and how Timothy can thrive in Ephesus, which was a polytheistic, just godless in terms of the Christian God society. So listen to what Paul says here. This is 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will, be able to, who will be able to teach others also. The first thing is to be strengthened by God. That's the first imperative that Paul told Timothy. Be strengthened by the grace of God. Do not cower, but be strengthened by the grace of God. And the second thing that he told Timothy was to uh, just relentlessly pass on doctrine from one generation to the next. Take this doctrine, take this word, and pass it on to the next generation. Now, when Paul said these things, he said, be strengthened by the grace of God and, and pass on the commandments of God to the next generations. We do both of these things at the same time. We are strengthened by God, by his grace, and we pass on his commandments. So it's two imperatives, but they are linked together. Two commandments, but they are absolutely brought together. So let's look at the first thing. The first call to action is to be strengthened by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now for us Christians in here, there are so many different ways that the grace of God abounds to us. I mean, so many different things. We woke up this morning, we went, you know, last night, um, we were breathing oxygen into our body and exhaling carbon monoxide or dioxide, one of those, whatever the one is that you, you breathe out, but you're not telling your body to do it. While you slept last night, your heart pumped blood throughout your body. You didn't tell it to do it. Your eyes constantly blink, um, so they, they function and they're, they're doing great. All this stuff like that, it's a grace of God. We woke up this morning. Actually, right now, we're sitting on a giant ball that's spinning at like 800 miles an hour, but we're not getting sick. If you go to like a county fair and get on one of those tilto rides that go like 30 miles an hour and get off and you're, you're wheezy and queasy and all that stuff, but we're going like 800 miles an hour right now. But in God's providence... We're not dizzy. We're not sick. He provides rain to help the crops grow, uh, rain for us to get to have drinking water. All these different graces that we have from God, they just go on and on and on. But the first and foremost grace that we have is the salvation that is given to us. It's not something that we earn. It's the salvation that is given to us. You and I deserve to go to hell. All of us. We deserve to go to hell. We deserve to be eternally separated from God. And it's because we have turned our backs on him. We have walked in a different direction. God stays put, but it's us that walks away. It's us that does what is right in our own eyes. We deserve to go to hell. In fact, God would be just to send everyone to hell on planet Earth if he wanted to. Because everyone walks away from him. He doesn't walk away from us. Everyone walks away from him. Isaiah said, we are all like sheep and we have gone astray. Every single one of us, we all are like sheep. We have gone astray. We all do what is right in our own eyes. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up first. While we were sinners, Jesus died for us. It's not that we started doing good things or giving money to charity. He died while we were sinners. The salvation that is given to us is not based on our goodness. It's based on the goodness of God alone. And that's it. Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Our ability to thrive in these uncertain times is our assurance of salvation through the grace of Christ. As suffering comes up, we as, local, we as a local church 
can praise God and thank God because he has saved us. Above everything else, we are eternally secured. No matter what happens here, we are eternally secured. And that, that is something that we can be strengthened by the grace of God every single day. We are eternally secured no matter what happens. We have salvation in Christ alone because God in his providence and good mercy sent Jesus to die on the cross and raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit has come into our heart to convict us, convict us of sin and give us the gift of faith. God has done all the work for us. We just receive his blessing. So we can be strengthened by the grace of God and this is every single day. Psalm 8410 says this, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Better is one day in the courts of God than a thousand days somewhere else. Give me one day in the presence of God, one day where we can physically walk with God in the cool of the day, one day where we have perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect love. Give us one day in God's courts than a thousand days somewhere else. A thousand days, you know, the Bengals went to the Super Bowl last year, and that was super fun. But over the next thousand days, if they go three times, it still doesn't compare. If we get um, promotions at our job, raises at our job over the next three years, it doesn't compare. None of this stuff compares to being in the presence of God, in the courts of God, and that is something that is assured of us. Jesus said, if you follow me to the end, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When will we receive it? Not if we'll receive it, but when will we receive it through God. So we can be strengthened in our salvation. We can be strengthened by the grace of God that he has given us because he has chosen to save us. But God is not limited just to our salvation. The grace of God is not just about um, our salvation. We also receive grace through the providence and the foreplaying of God. So let's use Paul and Timothy as an example of God's good promise, something where God just works out a situation. It looks terrible, but it actually works out really, really good. The conversion of Paul to Christianity did not start with Paul, but it started with Stephen. Stephen, if you remember, he's a faithful follower of Christ. He loves Jesus, has faith in him, is, is serving his local church, is promoting the gospel, sharing the gospel with people. So Stephen is arrested and eventually will be killed because, because of his faith. The man who gives approval for Stephen's death is Paul. Paul's the one who stands there giving approval for his death. Stephen did, not, Stephen did not fear his suffering. He was faithful all the way to the end. He never wavered. He never buckled. He was faithful all the way to the end. But he was killed because of his faith. When that happened in Jerusalem, there was Christians in Jerusalem that scattered throughout the world because they were scared. I mean, there was heavy persecution. Paul was going around uh, looking at um, people's addresses, getting people's addresses of Christians, hunting them down. I mean, it was a crazy time to be a Christian in Jerusalem. So they scattered throughout the world. Some of these Christians end up in a city called Antioch. More on that in just a second. Meanwhile, Paul, as you guys know, his conversion story, he's walking along the road to Damascus. Christ blinds him with a light, and eventually, to make a long story short, Paul becomes a Christian. Paul will be trained up and sent out by his local church. But do you know the local church that sends out Paul? Antioch. Antioch is the city, the church in the city of Antioch that sends out Paul to go do missions. It's the city that funds Paul's missionary trips. It's the same city that these Christians fled Jerusalem to to escape Paul's persecution. 
So they left Paul's persecution to go to Antioch, and now Paul shows up in Antioch, and it's these Christians in the city and, and other ones that they've shared the gospel with, but they're training up Paul, teaching him the commandments of God, and funding his missionary trips. These same ones that fled because they were being persecuted. So Paul goes on these missionary trips, and on his first missionary trips, he meets two women named Lois and Eunice. Um, Lois is the, the mom. Eunice is the, uh, the daughter. They're older in life. It's not like a teenage daughter or anything like that. But uh, they're older in life. They hear the preaching of Paul, and the Holy Spirit works in their heart, and they give their life to Jesus. They repent of their sin and place their trust in Christ and begin to follow Christ. Eunice has a little son, a son named Timothy. Timothy will be trained up by his mom and his grandma and the other in the, the local church where he's at, and eventually he will join up with Paul and be trained by Paul and then eventually pastor the church that Paul plants in Ephesus. There is no way that Stephen had any idea when he was going to be killed for his faith that, all, that his, his martyrdom would lead to the expansion of the gospel, would lead to the salvation of literally millions of people over time with how the gospel has, has spread out, but also the conversion of the man who would plant all these churches and write 13 letters in the New Testament. We can be strengthened by the grace of God. We have thousands of years of history that prove the grace of God, literally thousands of years of history. If you guys don't know, this book, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,700 years from when Moses wrote Genesis and the, and the Torah to when the Apostle Paul wrote Revelation. It's about 1,700 years that the, uh, the Bible was written. It covers more time than that, but it, was, it took about 1,700 years for us to get this book. Over 1,700 years of writing down God's stories and his commandments and what he's done, what we have is a book that proves over and over and over how faithful and graceful God is to his people. Over and over and over. And then beyond this book, when it closed, uh, we have about 2,000 years of New Testament church history that again prove how faithful and graceful God is to his people. We have thousands and thousands of years of history that prove the gracefulness of God. We're going to be strengthened by the gracefulness of God. In these turbulent times with things you know, changing and uh, society going in a different direction, their history is like five or ten years old. They have no root. There's no anchor. That's why they're, they're in constant turmoil. Definitions change all the time. Colors on flags change all the time. There's no root or anchor. But we have this root and anchor in Christ, and we have thousands of years of history that proves his faithfulness to us. So we can be strengthened by the grace of God. It's not a leap of faith. We have a book written over 1,700 years that shows how faithful God is to his people. The church spread just like Jesus said it would. He said the kingdom of God would grow like a mustard seed. It would be very slow, but very gradual. He said the gospel would first be preached in Jerusalem. This is in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The gospel will be preached in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. It stayed in Jerusalem until what happened? Stephen was killed, and then it spread outside of Jerusalem. It was the death of Stephen that spread out, like, that made the gospel spread out to all these different cities. But it happened just like Jesus said. So he said, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Do you know what category we fall into? The ends of the earth. Do you know how far away we are from Jerusalem? It's like far away. I don't know with the miles, but it's far away from us. 
It's way far away from us. And when you consider that the gospel really didn't arrive in this land until the Puritans brought it in 1620, some 1,590 years-ish after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, then the gospel kind of took plant here when, when the Puritans brought it. But you're talking about a slow, gradual growth, and you're talking about the ends of the earth, all way, coming all the way to the ends of the earth. World missions and the growth of the church happened exactly as Jesus said it would. Exactly, like literally exactly as he said it would. He said, this is the prophecy, the church will grow like a mustard seed, slow but gradual. And what do we see? A slow and gradual growth. Then he said, it'll start in Jerusalem, and it'll go to the outskirts, and Judea and Samaria, and then it'll go to the ends of the earth. And what happened? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Very slow, but very gradual. World missions happened exactly as Jesus said it would. So we can be strengthened by the grace of God. He is our sure anchor in times of trouble. Now, the next thing that, uh, that Paul focuses on here is relentlessly, relentlessly passing on doctrine from one generation to the next. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I don't know if you guys saw how many generations are in that, but listen to it again. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's four generations going on right here. When Paul said, what you have heard from me, the me is Paul, that's generation one. What you have heard from me, the you is Timothy, that's generation two. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men, that's generation three who will be able to teach others also. That's generation four. Now, the way the church um, has spread, and it's not just limited, it's intended to go on and on and on, but the way the church has spread is through the teaching of God's commandments from one generation to the other. The faithful teaching of God's commandments. It's not some trick and pony show or anything like that. It's about, not about lights flowing everywhere and, and changing and fog machines and all this different stuff like that. It's about the commandments of God being passed down from one generation to the next. Now, uh, like I said on Father's Day, um, Greg talked about Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm not going to rehash the sermon, but I do want to point out a couple things because, again, 2 Timothy 2.2 lines up perfectly with Deuteronomy 6. So this is what God told Moses to say in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, this is the commandment. The statutes, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're about to go over to possess it, that you may love the Lord your God and listen to the generations, you and your son and your son's son. It includes women as well. It's not just sons. But you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life and that your day may be long. God wants us and our children and our grandchildren, and the generations that will come, o- come after us that we won't see this side of heaven. He wants all of us to know who he is. And how do we love God? How do we resist the world and follow the king? By teaching the commandments from one generation to the next. It's really simple. That is what we are supposed to do and relentlessly do this. Look what um, Deuteronomy 6, 7 says in terms of how often do we teach the commandments to our children or to other generations? You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. 
So there's these times of formal sit-down discipleship that we do with our kids or with younger generations. In our family, we are studying through the Gospel of Mark, and so I'll gather my kids together and we'll read Mark and explain Mark as my six-year-old and they kind of roll around and do somersaults. It's great family discipleship. Um, but that's, uh, we have these formal moments. But then we have these informal moments where we, te- where we disciple our kids as well. Uh, just today, I was taking my 13-year-old daughter home from cross-country practice, and she was just lamenting about the annoyance of her little brother. Dad, he's so annoying. He says the same thing over and over, forgetting that she was the same way when she was young. And, uh, and she keeps going on and on and on. I said, Mary, like, do you realize God is faithful to us when we're annoying to him? Do you, do you get that? Like when we sin the same sin over and over, like a dog returned to its vomit, we do the same thing over and over that God is faithful when he forbears with us. And she's like, it's totally different. You know, it's, it's not the same. <laughs> 13-year-old girls, like, it's just hard sometimes. But, um, but these are just moments of informal discipleship, just teaching God's ways uh, to, um, to our kids. Charlie, if I can use you as an example, um, last, uh, last Sunday, I was talking with Charlie after church, and he's talking about how much he loves Mary Jo. Just absolutely loves Mary Jo. Charlie's son is about to get married to kind of my daughter um, in, a, in a week and a half or two weeks, thir- thir- whatever, Mondays. Two weeks, two weeks. Should know that. Um, two weeks. But uh, man, he's going on and saying, like, man, I just, I want my son to have this, this joy. And uh, he's talking about this, and I'm like, man, I need to appreciate my wife more because she's incredible. But to hear Charlie talk about Mary Jo and the way that he's talking about her and how much he loves her and loves spending time, that's discipleship. It's just informal discipleship. It's as you sit, as you rise, as you talk after church, you know, in that situation, that's discipleship. It's passing on God's ways and God's commandments from one generation to the next. Our faith, um, all of our faith in here, it did not arise in a vacuum. Like, we are all here because someone has poured into us or is currently pouring into us. Our faith did not arise in a vacuum. We sit on the shoulders of people who have walked before us. There is this long chain that extends all the way back to the New Testament church, to the days of Peter, to the days of Paul, and we are just that current link in the chain. And there's these links that are going to come after us that are here right now and will continue on to the future. And it's our turn to share what we've been given to the next generation. It's our turn to diligently and faithfully pass on the commands of God, the gospel of God to the next generation. So just in closing, some some points of application because I love application. What is one thing you can do to strengthen yourself in the grace of God every day? What's just one thing that you can do? For me, I, I have a planner because I'm a type A nerd, and I like to be organized. And in my planner every day, I write one thing from the previous day that God did that I'm very, very thankful for. It could be sweet fellowship with, a, with friends. It could be conversations with Charlie. It could be my 13-year-old daughter did not yell at my, my son. Uh, it could be anything like that. Uh, just something where I look at the grace of God and I'm like, thank you that that happened. Thank you. And I write it down every single day. I write something down because every single day, I seem to forget the grace of God. Um, and so you just, I, I need to stay focused and remember what he has done and be strengthened in his grace. So what's something that you can do to be strengthened in the grace of God every single day? It could be a simple act of, of thanksgiving. It could be a text that you send someone just thanking them for their friendship or whatever it is or, or checking in with someone. What can you do to be strengthened by the grace of God every single day? And the next thing is, who can you begin discipling? How can you pour into people that are younger than you? It doesn't have to be kids. 
became, I'm 42. Charlie poured into me. It doesn't have to be like you're, you're discipling someone that's, uh, that's still in school. It can be any generation. But who can you intentionally be discipling? Who can you, when you're at church on Sunday, look at and like, how can I go encourage that person today? Or before church, how can I go encourage um, this person today? Because we all need the encouragement. We're all in this together. Jesus wrote this letter to Smyrna to the entire church. It wasn't an individual. It was the entire church. How can we as a church family be strengthened by the grace of God every single day? And how can we as a church family pass on the commandments and the gospel of God to the, to the generations that are coming up? Go ahead and pray, uh, pray with me, please. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you for your faithfulness from one generation to next. We confess, Lord, that um, better is one day in your house than a thousand days elsewhere. I confess, Lord, my sin of forgetting um, how good you are and how faithful you are to me personally. God, I thank you for this church that, um, that I, I personally and my family is here in this church and for how we have learned from the elders, how we have learned from other people in this church. Father, thank you for your great love and grace that we have a church family. Thank you for the history that we, that we have that we have the sure anchor of thousands and thousands of years of your faithfulness to your people. We don't have to question it. We can open the Bible and see and know that we have thousands of years of history. Father, I pray that you would make us a faithful people. I pray that you would increase our faith. I pray that we would be bold in these times, in these turbulent times, that we would lovingly share the gospel and the commandments with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family. Father, I pray that we would have a bold witness for you. God, we're thankful for our, our assurance of faith. We're thankful for the crown of life that awaits us, not because we are good and deserve the crown, but because you have graciously forgiven us and graciously have given us the crown of life. Father, thank you that we will have fellowship with you for all of eternity, that this is just a foretaste of what is to come. Thank you for your blessing on us. In Christ's name, amen.